good morning. Uh, summer is a time of uh, vacation, uh, of recess and break. And uh, this morning we are going to take a uh, vacation from the book of Luke. Uh, actually this morning, uh, next week, and the week after. And we're going to be doing a, a brief series on Psalms as a, as a break in the midst of this summer. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 16. Psalm chapter 16. Pastor Chris asked us to, uh, to, uh, to speak on a psalm that was uh, an encouragement to us. And uh, uh, the psalm that I'd like to, for us to dive into today, uh, and I'll try not to keep the diving in metaphors coming too frequently this morning, but uh, occasionally they slip out, uh, is Psalm chapter 16. I invite you to follow along as I read. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who will increase, who run after other gods, and I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. But Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with the joy, with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Psalm chapter 16. As I read that psalm, I can't but help but think that David, the author of that psalm, he really has things going pretty well uh, for him. Uh, this psalm, it, it bubbles with confidence, with security, with joy. And my question for you and for me is, what would it take for you to have that kind of outlook on life? What would it take for you to look at your life and to be able to, to write or to say what Psalm 16 says? Uh, would it take a promotion or a raise, uh, maybe a Powerball lottery numbers coming through for you? Then could you say, wow, I have a beautiful inheritance. Um, perhaps it's a relationship or a change in a relationship, a spouse who's more responsive to your needs, uh, kids who are more cheerfully obedient. Then you could say, I delight in the saints in the land. Uh, what would it take for Psalm 16 to be your words, the expression of your heart, uh, contentment and joy, confidence, security, rejoicing and delight? Uh, today, I would like to dig into Psalm uh, chapter 16. Uh, and in it, we will find uh, several things. Uh, this psalm is, first of all, a messianic psalm. In addition to being the words of David spoken out of the context of his life, uh, this is also a psalm that if you 
if you turn over to Acts chapter 2, and again in Acts chapter 13, uh, both Peter and Paul say this psalm is not just about David, it is also about Jesus. He is the one who says you have, uh, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Uh, I am secure and I will rejoice. Uh, you will not leave me alone. Uh, both Paul, Peter in Acts chapter 2 and Paul in Acts chapter 13, we'll look at those verses a little bit later on, say, you know what? This Jesus who was just crucified, he was spoken about by David prophetically. And while David was speaking of his own circumstances, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of these words of David. Uh, it's like an artwork in which an individual portrait uh, becomes part of a larger portrait. And as you back up and you see the big picture, you see something grander and more magnificent. That's what Psalm 16 is. It's about David, uh, but and we step back, it's also about Jesus. But in addition to that, it is about us. The reality of this psalm is not something that is just for the Davids uh, or the Jesus uh, of this world. It is something that God uh, gives as a potential for us to experience. Uh, in the psalm, uh, I find five habits of life, find patterns, a ways of living that are essential if you want to have this type of joy and security and confidence in your life. So how do we develop that outlook? We need to think like David did and Christ did and as they reveal in Psalm chapter 16. Uh, the first thing that we noticed here as it begins with a prayer. It begins with a request. It says, keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. And the first habit or pattern of a person who would like to be marked by this type of, of confident, joyous outlook on life, the security in God and in life, it has to do with asking. It has to do with asking. Uh, David says, keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. A simple prayer a simple request. It's not revisited later in the psalm. It's just David saying, God, I need you to preserve me. I need you to be my refuge in time of trouble. Now, there is an implication there. The implication is that you only ask for preservation when there is a threat. It only makes sense that someone prays for this when there are some types of threat. Now, David knew threats. Uh, you can't think of David's life without thinking of of Goliath, uh, of Saul, uh, the Philistines, his enemies. Uh, if you dig deep in your memory banks, maybe you come up with the name of Absalom, David's son, who staged a coup and drove David out of his city and ultimately tried to kill him. Uh, David knew a threat, and he, so he prayed, keep me safe, O God, in you I take refuge. Uh, Jesus knew threats, he knew a hostility. Uh, from the religious leaders of his day. Uh, he understood crowds demanding for his attention, always wanting more and more and more. Uh, Jesus knew what betrayal felt like from one of his own. And out of that need, David and Jesus and us come to God and, and asking a frame of mind, one that is asking for help. The first uh, principle about asking that I notice is that if you want to experience God, you must enter the fray. 
Uh, it's kind of a, a silly expression, enter the fray. Uh, it has to do with being willing to enter into a competitive or a combative uh, situation. Uh, but the reality is that if you want to experience God, if you want to see him at work, you must enter the fray. Those who are unwilling to enter the fray, they miss out on seeing God's work because that is where God is at work. I saw a firsthand example of that when we were in, when Rhonda and I were in Kosovo earlier this summer. Um, uh, one of uh, the main place that we were in was working with the staff of the Kosovo Leadership Academy. Uh, it's a private school run by Christians in this 95% Muslim nation. Uh, this school didn't exist a few short years ago, uh, and last school year they met in a rented building, actually a third floor uh, of, a, of a little office building they operated uh, this school. Uh, but their prayer and desire was to have a building of their own that would be a base for ministry uh, in this town uh, in the country of Kosovo. But in order to make that happen, they needed land. And through God's provision, uh, they had land and the blessing of even the government uh, to build a school on this land. Uh, but as these folks, they told us the story, they said, you know what? They didn't think that we'd be able to do it. Uh, if you were at our presentation on Wednesday, you saw uh, so many buildings half-finished in Kosovo. The norm is for, some, for something to, from planning to being completion, it takes years or even decades. And it's not unusual as you drive around to see unfinished buildings with uh, the block walls but no windows, nothing on the interior, as people are, are trying to, to rebuild their country. And, and so they were able to provide land, but the, the leaders in that country said, you know what, we, we really we doubt that this is going to happen, uh, or at least anytime soon. Uh, but these folks, these small group of Christians, they prayed. They prayed that God would provide the money that would be needed uh, to build a school building for them to minister in their community. Uh, the cost was daunting. It's $3 million they needed. Uh, but heading into last October, uh, they were $300,000 short of that. The problem was that in order to build the building in time for this current school year, uh, the following Monday, uh, they needed to raise all of the money uh, for the school. Uh, and so when they met last fall in October for a, a weekend uh, planning session, they prayed. Uh, they prayed that God would raise uh, the money that they needed. Over the course of that weekend, uh, their business manager received one email uh, and then another and then another. Uh, no one gift in that whole amount, but at the end of that weekend, all of the money that was needed to complete construction was pledged and promised uh, or given uh, for it. Uh, they praised God that he provided for them. They entered the fray. Uh, they are starting this ministry in a war-torn country, predominantly Muslim, because they know that people there need to hear Christ. They entered the fray, and when they do that, they saw God answer prayer. Uh, they're amazed and praising God at what he could do. If you want to experience God, you must enter uh, the fray. You know, what we call this Sunday a volunteer Sunday, and I, I must confess that part of me really doesn't like asking people to serve and do ministry. I know that you're busy. I know that people's lives are very, very full. And, and I don't like to be one more voice calling to say, hey, there's something else that needs to be done that we need to do. Uh, but you know what? The one thing that gives me confidence and with a smile and a sincere heart 
that I can invite people to get involved in ministry is that if you want to know God, if you want to experience his provision, if you want to see him answer prayer, you enter the fray. You enter into ministry that involves you with others. And in doing that, uh, you will see God provide. You will experience him in ways that can't uh, if you stand at arm's distance from the fray. Um, you know, right now, to be honest, one of our key areas of need is in men. Uh, we have, uh, we have uh, many, many, many women who step up and serve in our children's ministry. Uh, but whether it's Awana or our uh, wharf, uh, we need men who would be willing to step up and say, I am willing to be a godly example, somebody who cares about God and is willing to, to share God's word uh, with a group of, group of kids. It's a tremendous area of need. Uh, there are others as well. Uh, but in the midst of our busyness, I invite you to enter the fray because in doing that, you give God the opportunity to work. Uh, you can experience God. That was David's experience. That was what Christ uh, could say, you know what, I go and I take this cup and I do it uh, willingly because it is what God wants and I want to see what God, God is going to accomplish things through me that he would not otherwise. If you want to experience God, you must enter the fray. Uh, the first habit of someone who wants to have the security and the confidence and the joy uh, of David in Psalm 16 is that they are willing to ask. They are asking. Uh, but it doesn't end there. A second habit of life is that of following. In verses 2 through 4, uh, David pledges his loyalty to God. Uh, he says, I say to the Lord, that's Jehovah, Yahweh, you are my Lord. Uh, in a sense, it's obvious and true that God is the Lord uh, overall. He, he made this world. He created it. He reigns over it. Uh, but David's expression is to say, I place myself under your authority as my Lord and my master. I say to, to Yahweh, you are my master. Uh, he says, apart from you, I have no good thing. Uh, if you have an older translation, some of them read a little bit differently. They say something along the lines of nothing good comes apart from your provision. Uh, it's kind of two different uh, translations there. One that emphasizes what I have to offer God, nothing good, uh, or uh, the older translations to say, uh, nothing good that I have uh, comes apart from your uh, provision. Uh, I tend to, uh, to side uh, with the NIV saying, I have no good thing that apart from you, all that is good that I have, ultimately it comes from you. Uh, David, in writing this, pledges his loyalty to God. He says, I am going to follow you. What does it mean to follow him? Well, it begins with entering into a relationship with Christ. Uh, it comes with a point in time when a person admits that they are a sinner, asks for God's forgiveness, and commits themselves to follow him. Um, if we want Christ, we choose him as Lord. Um, he has given himself for us, and we must choose to place ourselves under his authority, under his protection, under his saving blood. Um, and David pledges, you are my Lord, I am going to follow you. Uh, then he gives two examples, one positive example and one negative example of what that looks like. Uh, first, he says, uh, all, as for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is my delight. Uh, you know, when I first read this psalm, it seemed out of place. Perhaps it does 
for you as well. What exactly, out of the blue it seems, that David says, you know what, uh, I treasure, uh, I, you are my Lord, and I, uh, I find delight in your saints who are in the land. I see them as noble, as a good thing. Uh, why would Dave interject this? At the, why would David interject this at this point uh, in his life, or in this psalm? And then I realize that in part it is because of the character of God. Uh, while David receive, has no good to offer to God, he can love what God loves. And in Psalms, throughout the Psalms, we read many times uh, what we read in Psalms and in Proverbs, that God takes delight in his children. Proverbs 18, 19 says, he rescued me because he delighted in me. God delights in his children. He delights in you. He looks on you with favor and joy. He takes delight in those he has, he has rescued and he saved. And he calls those who are his children to take delight in them as well. You know, this is very interesting because in a world where often Christians are seen as, as out of touch, out of date, uh, maybe even on the wrong side of history at times, uh, in a world that even we as Christians, we sometimes can be very critical and judgmental. And, and, our, and our judgmentalness and our criticism happens first and foremost with those who we share uh, a same faith with. David says, I take delight in, my, in the saints. I see them as noble and as good. To be honest, that's convicting of me uh, because I can be critical. I can be judgmental uh, of those close to me, uh, of, the, of the Christian community. I can say, oh, this is embarrassing when I see something in the news. And I'm like, why do Christians do things like that? Why do they say things like that? And, and while there is a point at which we are always... Uh, accountable to each other. Uh, the reality is, there ought to be evidence in my life that I take delight in those who God takes delight in. What is the evidence that I take delight? Do I enjoy being in the presence of other Christians? Uh, am I encouraged uh, by their faith? Uh, do I enjoy hearing of what God is doing uh, in other people's lives? Uh, for David, he says, you know how I, how I could, what evidence I could give that you are my Lord? I take delight in your saints because you delight in your saints. Uh, that's a positive example. Uh, David also gives a negative example, something he doesn't do uh, as evidence that God is his Lord and his Savior. And in verse 4, he says uh, that there are those who run after other gods but those who do so, their sorrows increase. And so I will not offer sacrifices to them. In fact, I will not even take the names of these other gods upon my lips. Uh, I believe uh, David is saying that you must avoid the sorrows of self-reliance or of reliance on things that are apart from the will of God uh, if you are going to be loyal to him. Loyalty him demands that we don't run to other sources for our needs to be met, uh, at least to sources that are apart from his will. You know, I stumbled across an example of this in Isaiah chapter 30. I'd invite you to turn there, because we're going to look at several verses there. Tucked in the middle of Isaiah uh, chapter 30, uh, Isaiah is speaking to the people who are 
uh, to be honest, they're experiencing some incredibly trying times. Uh, they are being invaded from the north by the Assyrians. And uh, the Assyrians are marching roughshod through nation after nation. Uh, in fact, they have defeated the northern tribes of Israel, and now they're approaching Jerusalem. And there are some in Jerusalem who said, what we need to do is we're just a small fish. And we need, and this is a, this is a big fish problem. The Assyrians are gobbling everybody. We need another big fish. I, I promised I wouldn't give a lot of metaphor, but this one, it fits. It fits. This is, uh, maybe it's Nemo up there staring at me that uh, is drawing my mind to it. We need a big fish to come to our defense. And so they said, you know what? The other big fish in our neighborhood is Egypt. If the Egyptians, if we ally ourselves with the Egyptians, they can join with us and defend us uh, from these Assyrian armies. Uh, that was their plan. That was their desire. And in Isaiah chapter 30, we read God's response to that plan. Uh, in verses 1 and 2, it says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. God says through Isaiah, you're choosing to be, to be rescued and saved, to have your needs met, but you're doing it in a way that I didn't instruct you. You did it without my direction, without my uh, guidance and prompting, and you're seeking refuge uh, from people who are following some other God. We would never do that. We would never place our hopes in political leaders, um, the powers of this world, and, and really rest and hope that they will be the ones who will turn our country around. They're the ones who will make a, a lasting difference. We'd never put our hope and confidence in them, uh, would we? Perhaps. Uh, for in Isaiah's day, he goes on to say, you know what? Your, all of your attempting to solve your problems by choosing a plan apart from my will, uh, it, it's going to come to naught. He said, you can get the biggest army that you want, but when your enemies come against you, one of them will make a thousand of you flee. He says, your, your, source, of hope, your source of hope uh, should be me. In fact, in verse 15 of Isaiah 30, uh, he makes the transition from saying the Egyptian plan is not going to work. And he says, for thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. Isaiah says, wait for the Lord. Rest in him. Return to him, and you will be saved. He will be your strength. If we read on in verse 18, he says, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those, all those who wait for him. Following the Lord sometimes means avoiding, uh, relying on myself and waiting and trusting in him that he will provide, that he will work his will and his salvation in his timing. Following means uh, resting in him. This is a thir the third point that we also see in Psalm chapter 16. That we have to rest and wait for God to provide. 
You know, that's difficult. Because uh, I know that there are folks who say, you know what, I'm asking. I ask God for me to work. I know that I need his help in whatever situation is going on in my life. And I'm following him. I'm trying to be faithful. I'm submitted to him. I'm doing this the best that I can. Uh, but it's hard because it's not happening. It's not happening the way that I think that it should. I think Isaiah would say to us, God works in returning and rest. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. In the waiting, it gives God time to work in ways that bring glory to his name, um, not just to rescue us in our, according to our timing. In waiting for him, our faith is built and strengthened. As we, as we uh, wait for him to answer our prayers, uh, God strengthens our faith as we, as we have to say, you know what, I'm going to keep on believing. Uh, I don't put God on a short time schedule, on my time schedule. I am patient with his time schedule because I truly do trust him. Um, I trust him to work at his right time. And Isaiah gives us the confidence and he says, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Um, following God. Asking. And thirdly, resting in his provision, and in his timing is vital. In Psalm chapter 16, uh, you can turn back there uh, if you like, uh, David says something that, that sounds a little bit strange to our modern ears. Uh, he says, Lord, you are my portion and my cup. Uh, he talks about the security uh, of his lot. Um, he is speaking out of an Old Testament context in which the people of Israel moved, lived, moved to the promised land a land that they inherited from God, and they received their inheritance uh, by lots, uh, by, by chance. They were distributed to the people. Uh, but David affirms that his lot is something that is pleasant, delightful. Uh, some translations call it beautiful. His inheritance is a good thing. Uh, David is willing to rest in God's blessing. It is in resting that we find security and confidence in him in being grateful for uh, what he has provided and what he has done. Uh, that can be difficult at times. Uh, this past Wednesday, when Rhonda and I were sharing about the, our Kosovo trip, she told uh, a somewhat funny story that I find less funny than she does. Uh, but uh, I'll share it here because it fits. Uh, when we were leaving on our, on our trip, uh, we got up early on Monday morning, drove to Chicago, waited in the airport, got on the plane, took a nine-hour flight, uh, got picked up at the airport, drove to our missionary's house about uh, 45 minutes to an hour away, and it was now the next morning. So we had been basically been up uh, from Monday morning. It's now Tuesday morning. Our body clocks are saying it's 2 o'clock in the morning. And, uh, but we come to our missionary's house, and they had prepared breakfast for us. Uh, very kind. A beautiful, uh, really attractive oatmeal uh, bake with peaches and blueberries. Doesn't that sound good this morning? I bet it does to you. Uh, for me, I don't like blueberries or peaches or oatmeal. Uh, other than that, uh, it was very attractive to look at, uh, I, must, I must confess. Um, but that was my portion. Uh, that was my cup. That, was I was, that is what I was given. So how do I respond? 
Uh, well, to be honest, I'm grateful for my parents. Uh, in my house growing up, there was a rule. My mother was a wonderful cook, and she would make food, but I was a picky kid back then, uh, too. And, uh, and so sometimes I would say one of those things that I know, I know moms will resonate with this. I would say things like, Mom, thank you for this elaborate multi-course dinner. Could I have a peanut butter sandwich tonight instead? Don't moms, don't you like that when your, your kids do that? And, and, and the rule in our house was, if it's not on the table, it's not for dinner. Uh, and so uh, there, was, there was no other option in our house. If you don't see it on the table, that's not what's being served for this meal. This meal. And so uh, in my pickiness, sometimes I would just go hungry. Uh, but let, we're not here to talk about my personal issues. Uh, we're talking about my portion, my cup. This is my portion, my cup. This is what I was served. I have chose to receive it and accept it as what God has for me. That's what, this is my portion, my cup. What you have given to me, God, I receive it and I recognize it for its beauty and its delight and its goodness. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes we, sometimes Ken, is a little bit like 12-year-old Ken who, who has a beautiful spread in front of him and says, could I have a peanut butter sandwich instead of uh, this, this meat that isn't my favorite one? Uh, is there a better offer somewhere that I could have? Because the reality is, if we look at our lives with honesty, God has overflowed his blessing to us. There is so much good in our lives. Uh, the gifts of health, our heritage, our abilities, opportunities to work. Uh, our, most of us live very far from the level of need. And, and those of us who live close to that need, the level of need, even that, if we compare ourselves to folks who live in different cultures, we say, you know what? We have tremendous blessings in this country and in this nation. And above and beyond all of that, what David says in Psalm 16 is, my portion and my cup is you. You are my, my portion and cup is how the English Standard Version, I know the NIV reads a little bit differently, but it says, God, you have either provided or you yourself are my portion. If I have you, who am I to complain? Who am I to seek out a better offer? Who, are me to, who am I to ask what else is in the cupboard when I have you as my portion? Uh, you who have given your son for me. You who have saved me, not out of my goodness, but out of your grace. You who have provided for me uh, far beyond the level of my need, all of these things. Uh, David would say, rest in God's provision. He has poured out good for you. And when you do that, you will find joy and confidence to live to say, you know what? I know I am in the hands of a good God uh, who cares for me, who loves me, and is with me. The patterns of life that allow us to live a life of security and confidence and joy, it has to do with asking. It has to do with following. It has to do with resting. Two last things that I would notice from Psalm 16. In verse 7 and 8, he says we must be relying. We must rely on something. The habit of our life must be relying on what? On God's counsel. He says, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaking. I will not be shaken. 
It says, my place is secure because I rely on your counsel. Uh, again and again throughout Scripture, it says, you know what? Uh, a person who, res- who relies, who seeks wisdom, in Proverbs chapter 2, who chases after it, who desires it uh, more than anything, who, more than gold and rubies and precious metals, he desires wisdom. A person who does that and relies on God's counsel, they will experience God's provision and his blessing. And so David can say, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. Uh, I think he's saying God meets me in the quiet times if I allow myself there. Um, My question is, is his will my goal? Is the most important thing to me to do God's will? To first of all, to know it. Uh, Do I seek to know God better and to know his will? Do I look for opportunities to read, to study, uh, to grow together with others? Uh, Do I look for those? And then do I really desire to follow them? Is that the thing that is most important to me? Or does it get crowded out with other goals, with my plans, my desires, uh, my schedule? Is that what is most important, or is his will my goal? For David, he would say, uh, I praise God who counsels me. He meets with me, instructs me, even in the night. And then he follows that up with saying, I have set the Lord before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. What's interesting, and that's a, that's a flip uh, from how that is normally presented in Scripture. Uh, normally, when we think of the right hand, we think of uh, perhaps James and John, or their mother, really, who came to Jesus and said, hey, could my son sit at your right hand? Uh, or in other places in Scripture where it says that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. Uh, but here in Psalm 16, it's, it's flipped. That right hand position, that position of honor uh, to be next to the the king in his right hand. In this psalm, David says, when I rely on his counsel, God is at my right hand. You are at my right hand. Uh, Not that I bestow some honor to you, but you are there and at my right hand uh, to serve and protect and to do your work and your will. But that comes when I rely on your counsel. When I rely on your counsel, all of a sudden God becomes uh, active and at work in my life. Uh, relying is the habit of heart, the pattern of life uh, that allows one to experience security and confidence because that is when God is at work going before us and coming behind us, supporting and sustaining us, present with us in whatever is going on and allows us to enter into whatever the challenges of our life is uh, with joy and with confidence. God is at our right hand and so I will not be shaken. Uh, relying on his counsel. Well, the last three verses uh, of this psalm are really the ones that are predominantly quoted in the New Testament uh, about Christ. Uh, That uh, Peter says that this, uh, actually turn over to Acts chapter 2 for a moment. Acts chapter 2, in Jesus, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, He's trying to make sense uh, of proclaiming this Jesus who had been crucified, but to say that his life means something more. And and it's not something new. that It is something new that he's done, but it's not something unexpected because it was prophesied in Scripture. Uh, In Acts chapter 2, verse 24, he says, But God raised him from the dead, 
uh, this one that you had put to, put to death, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, remember this is about David and also about Jesus. I, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to this fact. Peter says this Jesus, um, this, this David prophecy was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, that death could not contain him, uh, that decay was not something that he would see, uh, but God would pour out uh, on him joy in his presence and the path of life. Uh, the fifth habit uh, of someone who, who wants to experience the confidence and joy and security is to rejoice in your security in Christ. Rejoice in the security of your eternity uh, in Christ. You know what, sometimes that seems like a, a, a small thing to us. I think because often we are so consumed with this life, with what needs to be done on this day or this week or this month. Uh, with the challenges that we have. And I understand that. Uh, we have to live the life that is before us. Uh, but sometimes we gather on Sunday morning to be reminded of something, something that is hugely significant, something that puts everything else into perspective. And that reality is, from Psalm 16 to Acts chapter 2 to Revelation 22, is that the end of this story is that death does not end it all. That the victory that we have in Christ is not just an overcoming of my challenges of Monday morning, it's the fact that the big challenge, the challenge of death and the grave, has by won by Christ, and that victory has been given to us uh, in Jesus. David says, I know that I will not be abandoned by you. Whatever else happens, I know that, that you, I am in your hands that you will guide me, that you will not let me see decay, and that you will bring me rejoicing into your kingdom. That perspective is essential for us as Christians. Uh, if we live as if though this life is what is most important and is all that really matters, it is easy to be dragged down. But if we say, you know what, the big problem in life is the problem of, uh, of disease that leads to death and our eternal state, we say, you know what, in light of everything else that's happened in my life, I know that that is secure in Christ. Uh, it makes a huge difference if we have a right perspective on our issues, on our challenges, if we are rejoicing uh, as a pattern uh, of life. You know what the reality is? That joy is not a personality type. Uh, joy is not something that if a person is bubbly and extrovert, yep, they have joy. Uh, joy is a deep-seated contentment, delight, and gladness. Uh, it's one that comes from someone who 
who understands the security of their place in Christ. And so whatever is happening in the circumstances, it is not ultimately defeating and despairing because they understand what God has done. You know, in Acts chapter 13, uh, Paul quotes from Psalm chapter 16. He says, the whole, our, he's talking about Jesus, and he said, the Holy One will not see decay. But then he follows it up in talking about David, and he said that David, after he had served the purpose of God in his generation, he slept, he died, but Jesus came and he fulfilled this promise from Psalm 16 and he won the victory uh, over death. It is that victory over death that allowed Jesus, who on the one hand could pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, may this cup pass from me. This cup that God has given, he says, may it pass from me. But then in Hebrews 12, 2 could also say, because of the joy set before him, he despised the suffering of the cross. He said the joy that overcomes whatever the difficulty is for Christ, his death on the cross for us, there was a joy set before him that allowed him to overcome him, overcome uh, even the challenges of that difficulty. It was worth it because of the joy that follows. Uh, the habit, the pattern of life is one of rejoicing, rejoicing in what God has done. You know, our life is largely made of the habits and patterns that we live by. Uh, my question as we conclude uh, this morning is if the person who knew you best, if I were to ask them and they were completely honest, would they say that you are marked by security and joy and confidence in your life? Uh, one that's like Psalm chapter 16. The person who knew you best, if they were honest, uh, would they say that you're marked by the, by the type of outlook on life that David and Jesus, and that he offers to us because we are secure in his hand? If that is not the case, I would ask you to ask yourself, is your life char characterized by asking? Are you entering the fray and seeking God's help in this and seeing him provide? Are you following consistently, wholeheartedly, submitted to him, seeking to do his will? Are you resting? Maybe that's the time you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to trust in God's promise. I, I receive the lot that he has given me, and I rest in it because I know that he will be at work uh, in these circumstances. Are you relying on his counsel, seeking to know it, and seeking to obey it and follow it? And are you willing to rejoice uh, and give thanks? Uh, in the midst of it. You know, this last one is a big one. Um, and I'll conclude with this thought. Uh, sometimes we say, you know what, the challenge of my life is not the external circumstances, it's what's inside. Uh, it's the fact that I'm, a, I'm aware of my weakness and my flaws uh, and my failings. And sometimes I don't feel forgiven. Uh, I don't feel uh, like God has really forgiven me. Uh, it, my sin seems too big that it does. Uh, long ago, uh, a Christian teacher uh, gave me this advice, and it has to do with rejoicing in what God has done. He says, you know what, if you have sincerely asked God to forgive you for sin, uh, there's a point, if you're feeling unforgiveness, that you have to trust what God, God said is true. And in those instances, what can help change your way of thinking is to begin to thank God for his forgiveness. Uh, even though I don't feel forgiven to say, God, I know 
that I have sincerely asked for forgiveness, I thank you for what you have done through Christ to forgive my sins. And a person who develops the habit of rejoicing, of giving thanks and rejoicing in your forgiveness, that is what changes our hearts. Uh, when we rejoice in the facts and the truth of what God has done, uh, over and above what our circumstances say, uh, what our feelings say. And when we do that, we can experience uh, a Davidic, uh, a Jesus-like rejoicing, a security, a confidence in all that God has done. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Lord, I thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you that you offer us uh, a secure place to stand and meet the challenges of this life. Uh, the place that we stand is as your forgiven children who are in your hand, are never apart from your presence. And uh, Lord, we rejoice in that. We rejoice in what it means in this life and in the life to come. And we ask for your strength on a daily basis to come back to you, to follow you, to rely on you, to rest in your promises, uh, to rejoice in what you have done and will do for us. Uh, we love you, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.